0: Thank you. first episode of Iolian Broadcasting, an exploration of poetic form, cultural genesis and the secret winds that shape them both. Our first discussion deals with James B.V. Thompson's 1874 masterpiece of industrialised pessimism, The City of Dreadful Night. Often cited as a key influence of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, the keystone of British modernism, this distinctly post-romantic yet pre-modernist work sees the Scottish somnambulist negotiating the City of London, under the cover of Deepest Night. Thompson's wanderings, musings and occasional ravings tread the line between opium and alcohol-fueled night terrors and the all-too-real neuroses of an overworked insomniac. And through the meandering course of the poem, the night itself grows into Thompson's model for the philosophical condition of modernity, with its creeping homogenization and unplaceable oppressiveness. Our discussion of this poem is split over two episodes, A necessary concession, given the depth, breadth and density of Thompson's work. This first takes the poem's fourth canto as its jumping off point. We've included a reading of this section to give the ensuing conversation a little context. But if you'd like to read the full poem, which we obviously recommend, head over to our Instagram page at Iolian.broadcasting for the easiest place to find it. We hope you enjoy the show. So he was born in 1832, right? Uh,
1: he had measles as a kid and he actually gave measles to his sister who ended up dying from it so he always had this burden of killing his sister throughout his whole life right. like giving her measles
0: mm.
1: he also his dad had a stroke and his mum also died when he was quite young as well so he became an orphan in London that's why he was um, in London mm. Um and then then, um, so yeah, that, that's kind of just a bit of a background into like James Tom, Thompson's life.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, he was also a massive alcoholic. There was, um, I was reading this like um article about him and his. he fell in love with a, a younger woman, obviously, called Matilda Weller. Uh, she was only 14 when they met he was 18 17 18 uh she died and he then fell into a deep melancholy the melancholy was already inside of him and this was like this latent this release of latent melancholy that was already in him
0: i think that's that's quite interesting that idea of kind of i I don't know i guess sort of innate uh physiological melancholy versus uh melancholy and sort of depression as a sort of um as a cultural sort of symptom as a as a cultural state because i feel like there's a there's a bit in um i think it's in the first the first little stand the first stanza where there's a there's a reference to um to basically kind of establishes this sort of image of so sort of, i i kind of want to call it like the virology of like uh of of misery of of this kind of state he's describing in the city this kind of like cultural per, um cultural perforation and and spreading uh on whatever medium it is that it spreads through i guess like <laughs> there's a lot of what you can interpret probably i think spoiler it's probably like <laughs> industrial capitalism um but, yeah um, yeah when um he kind of sort of talks about these people kind of just basically kind of these these sort of lone wraith-like individuals just walking through the city, drifting through the city kind of on their own mm. um, and sort of encountering one another. And it's only when they encounter someone who's kind of seems to be sort of have this sort of appropriate attunement that they kind of open their mouths and sort of all this woe and misery starts coming out. Sort of this idea. Yeah. It, it's there's this sort of tone of it spreading like a kind of, a virus some sort of cultural transmission of a of a sort of (laughs) a bacterial kind of culture of depression or nihilism even maybe um i think the victorian kind of society
1: plays a part of this as well like i always thought because he says at one point something that the city has this kind of constant miss and i just kind of For me, I thought that was just an allusion to smog of Victorian London Mm. and this city being kind of dressed in smog constantly. Like all the, like, as you say, he's kind of like this somnambulist dude walking around this city meeting these weird phantoms of people who are also walking around in these, like, cyclical fashion of just, like, monotony. Just like, I have to do this every day at the beginning, he uh, talks about some dead faith, dead love, and dead hope is like the the recurring three notions of the whole like long poem, I guess,
0: the incantation, yeah, yeah, yeah. I and mean,
1: at the end, it comes back to that with just like a confirmation of the old despair, which is like you know this whole circle is like you know they've just been c- cyclically living throughout no like despair no love no hope you know it's just like monotony of that and like you know to a certain extent it's like Well, i was reading this thing about the book is a very like an introverted um poem in a way and it's like his introversion is been kind of templated onto the city of london i guess because yeah. it's, it's not london but it's london you know and it's Yeah, so when one looks inward too much, the mind becomes overwhelmed with what one could imagine. Mm. And uh, I kind of think of Nietzsche's famous quote, beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster, for when you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you kind of thing.
0: Yeah, this that's nice. Like, I think that definitely... So I think basically the sort of the main thing that I had kind of gleaned... uh, the the main kind of uh I don't know the sort of central the central kind of body of this poem for me is 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 built around this kind of this absence this aura of of of, of something kind of missing from the middle and I think it kind of talks we've we've I mean, we've had discussions before about kind of uh, uh the cultural proliferation of of meaning and what is the mechanism through which cultures kind of uh, transmit and communicate meaning uh. Uh, and particularly, you know, in the context of, of, specifically, you know, in art, but also kind of generally speaking, it's it's proliferated through symbols and symbology, signifiers, and signifiers um, exactly. And then we were, I know, um, we were kind of talking before about the idea of um, the sort of decentralization of uh, symbolic kind of structures and symbolic hierarchies, maybe, if you will kind of comes with the advent of of capitalism essentially and sort of free market ideology um the idea that you know you 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 suddenly i mean thompson specifically in this period kind of what 40 30 40 years after the industrial revolution is is living in a time when you know that kind of the death of dare, dare i say it, the death of god but like you know the death of, yeah. um, that hierarchy the kind of Re- the 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 religious the the central kind of structure of symbolic meaning that kind of is is the pillar of of western society and culture and politics and everything and morality and everything is held up in this structure of kind of of christian symbolic meaning you kind of have this sort of moral structure that's proliferated through these key symbols of light and dark and you know obviously the fables of the bible and everything in in very literal terms and obviously you know The kind of absence of that is is, I think, very is very intensely felt in this. And the way that capitalist free market culture and society offers this is 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 this kind of decentralization of meaning generation, Mm -hmm. whereby you kind of have it's a free-for-all, essentially. Anyone who has enough money to kind of (laughs) to to proliferate their own sort of structures of meaning, their own kind of um. Their own symbolic association like cultural hegemony kind of yeah exactly um
1: there's a bit where um he talks about the mansion that's the only place i thought this was such a stark kind of metaphor into like uh kind of disparity in victorian london uh the mansion is the only place that has light beaming from its windows and he and it's like on top of this mound and it's, you know, walled off. And he goes in there. There's just no one there and all the rooms are empty. But uh, paced from room to room, from hall to hall, nor any life throughout the maze discerned. But each was hung with a funeral pall and held a shrine around tapers burned with picture or the statue or with bust, all copied from the same form of dust, which is also like, a, maybe he was kind of perceiving the, the kind of end of, like, uh, Britain's cultural, like, significance. And uh, these these are just some of the, these are, like, obviously just the stanzas I've taken, like, you know, highlighted. And in the most oratory of my soul, wherein thou ever dwellest, quick or dead, in black with grief internal for thy sake. And then the last stanza is, he murmured thus and thus in monotone intent upon that uncorrupted face entranced except his moving lips alone i glided with hushed footsteps from the place this was the festival that filled with light the palace in the city of night so it's kind of like that ironic this is the festival and there's no one there it's the only thing that's lit in the Mm. whole town and it's just kind of this like ironic little two couplets at the end uh you know in this palace in the city of the night which thought that was pretty interesting
0: yeah yeah that's cool because i think that kind of like that sort of reminded me where i think i was going with my point earlier that um that this kind of uh this space of uh this kind of um cultural absence this sort of forceful forcefully felt absence like you were saying about um this kind of fog that's being depicted as hanging over the city kind of constantly. There's sort of this miasmic presence. And I, I think this couplet at the end speaks really nicely to that as well. This was the festival that filled with light, that palace in the city tonight. It's kind of nefarious, forceful light that is itself a kind of darkness, um, a kind of like dark matter kind of vibe, like a forceful, a forceful absence. Um, and that kind of I think sort of speaking to like you're saying the way that kind of when you're deprived of uh, like that Nietzsche quote that you read when you're sort of deprived of um, of external structures of meaning the the ease with the ease with which one kind of turns in and projects and sort of you know turns oneself inside out in a way and kind of over expands sure. and inflates all kind of psychoses and neuroses into objective correlates and suddenly you're walking around you know it's the whole psychogeography thing suddenly you're walking around in a map of your own mind with your own kind of a solipsistic patterns of of like we were saying symbolic meaning and everything having this kind of significance, this world of significance that exists only for you and the kind of um and which is you know for a lot of a lot of kind of artists and cultural theorists that's quite a profoundly beautiful thing I think obviously you know Nietzsche for example saw the potency of that you know he also obviously saw the threat of that but saw as well the kind of the capacity for sort of uh, self revolution that, uh, that that kind of held um but um i think jay uh, thompson thompson definitely is kind of reading i think as you say the sort of the nefariousness of that and the way that kind of the capitalist sort of vacuum <laughs> Of signifiers, and I say vacuum, but I guess I kind of mean over proliferation and over kind of decentralisation to such an extent that sort of all symbols and all systems of meaning have exactly the same significance, mm. and there is no kind of objective structure. Yeah, meaning. yeah. And how that can kind of can kind of for, um, draw out these pathologies and these uh, these neuroses and these uh, psychoses almost in people you know in in people like Thompson with the way he kind of discusses this uh this 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 malicious absence this kind of miasmic presence like I say and of kind of of the 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 night that's also a light and the kind of perpetual presence of fog and this kind of it kind of I mean I know (laughs) I feel like I'm gonna make a few references to this but like uh it it, for me it kind of has that almost pinchon esque feel of like there's something pervasive there's something kind of lurking in the air itself and in the brickwork and just kind of in the city in the structures of and the and, and the byways of the city that you can't see but is fundamentally kind of determining the fabric of everything around you and, and the meaning of everything around you in a way that's beyond your control and the kind of paranoia of that
1: there's um what was it there's this bit in the introduction that talks about because he was, he was he loved Leo Party. Uh, the Italian poet, he was like, yeah. translated some of his works. And there's this bit in the introduction because, you know, pessimism can be a bit, you know, <laughs> a bit like, oh, come on, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, so in, in, it says uh, Leopardi in his notebooks of being regarded as a pessimist and made this point about it. Uh, and quote he says works of genius have the intrinsic property that even when they give a perfect likeness of the nullity of things even when they express the most terrible despair always serve as a consolation rekindling enthusiasm and those speaking of portraying nothing but death restore to it at least for a while the life that it had lost there's like a a weird positivity to being this pessimistic i guess you know or being labeled as a pessimist i guess and I, I think i think what's his name? i think james thompson definitely took that to heart in a way
0: i totally i totally agree i think that idea of um uh you know the the statement that uh there is no structure of meaning in the world or you know nothing means anything is itself a declaration of the structure of meaning in the world. Uh, it's a kind of, it's an affirmation. It's it's a positive statement. Um, and I because I, I think this is I, I was I was thinking about this kind of idea of sort of uh, networks of networks or systems or structures of uh, you know meaning proliferation and these kind of networks by which people kind of uh, engineer meaning within a kind of culture and society through art and through commerce and whatever. Um, and the idea of kind of different sort of cultural or sort of different historical slash cultural kind of moments having their own kind of layers of these uh, these sort of nets. Sediments sort of, of time kind meaning. of thing. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. the idea that um I guess it's kind of a bit of an end of history idea, but like, you know, the Fukuyama kind of thing of like capitalism techno capitalism but i mean obviously i guess just in Jane, in in thompson's time could just say mm. kind of industrial capital capitalism being this kind of system that i mean as i kind of have, have have said like this idea of it kind of negating through pure decentralization of of meaning proliferation it kind of like and that's the sort of palimpsest mm. of the night this kind of dark absence negation of meaning that is itself a kind of structural uh, is itself a kind of product of a structure a product of a cultural kind of moment that's laid over on top but then like you're just saying it is still itself a a layer (laughs) it's still itself a kind of uh, a homogenous kind of cultural moment if you will um and I think it's interesting because I was (laughs) where um you kind of have um This this moment where where pessimism potentially kind of arches in sort of self revulsion (laughs) at its own is you you kind of being forced to confront the fact that pessimism, like you say, is in a way sometimes its own negation (laughs) because it is it's a it's an affirmation of something. It's an affirmation of it's it's a kind of willing willingness to sort of indulge, if you will, in your own kind of misery at how empty, kind of and meaningless and depressing everything is, but using that to kind of validate your being.
1: He was friends with loads of the the uh the kind of uh, radicalist atheists of London at the time. And what you were saying, you know, atheism is just uh denouncing God, you know, but you still acknowledge that you have to have a God to be an atheist in a way, you know, you need the dialectical things to work against each other, you know, in a way. Like, you need an opposite to make, like, have your own affirmation, I guess, in a way.
0: Yeah, exactly. Defined through its kind of contradiction.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's another, there's, because in the introduction, he was obsessed with mathematics. They were saying, like, he was like, he loved, he was better at maths than he was at uh, English at school. And there's a bit, there's a bit in, I think it's the second canto where, yeah, he talks about, it's the whole, the, uh, so I think the second canto is he meets someone who takes him around this circle. And he, in like the end of these, uh, at the end of the stanzas, it's like, here, faith died poisoned by the charnel air. Here, love died stabbed by its own worshipped pair. And then here, hope died starved out in its utmost lair. And so there's the three reoccurring themes, I guess. And um, at the end of the, the canto, the last uh, last like line is of but three terms, dead faith, dead love, dead hope. And there's like a little um, footnote was by him. And he said, life divided by that persistent three, faith, Love and hope divided by three. And for him, it gives this reoccurring number, which also the reoccurrence of monotony and the endless night of the city. Uh, mm. And there's just like a mm. nice, it's like a lot, like, you know, I mean, I'm not the best at math, but I thought that was quite interesting. Um, what's it called? He, he, it's called the, perpetu- the perpetual reoccurrence.
0: Drawing on is 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 because I uh, got very into Schopenhauer when I was in my adolescence. There's a lot of I was going to bring some of that up because there's a lot
1: of um, a lot of like uh,
0: reference to the will. There is, there and, is, and and just the pure pessimism
1: and a lot of like rota rota fortuna, which is the wheel of fortune, which is like. Uh, uh, fortune the goddess of fortune she spins the wheel and it's kind of like you know like that was in Dante's Inferno Um, and he talks about that in there's a bit where he talks about life being this mill which I thought was very similar like uh, symbolically
0: to the wheel of fortune and it's like life keeps moving along this mill—the the, the the wheat and chaff of of humankind being ground down into dust under the the eternal wheel of the mill, which is obviously ex- yeah, extreme. That's extremely Shopenhauerian. But there's one specific there's a there's a specific term that I just really love. This semantic, this sort of semantic little flip that he does in it of um, the uh, he refers to. I'm gonna to have to try and find the full quote, but it, "man evolving doom." So, man hyphen evolving so doom that evolves man. <laughs> so it's kind of this like this myriological reverse uh, reorientation whereby doom, which is obviously kind of like a, you kind of think of it purely in the context of humankind, of like it's the end of humankind. It's it do doom only exists as the projection of our end, but in actuality, and this is a very Schopenhauerian idea. The doom is what exists primarily. <laughs> doom is kind of the, the end of the perpetual ending. And the kind of uh, misery that accompanies that perpetual ending is metaphysically primary. And it's and more so than that, it is what evolves man. <laughs> it's what gives it's what births man is the process of doom and ending. It's like that
1: yeah, yeah. beautifully
0: kind of <laughs> miserable, but like super like tight little turn of phrase that I really liked. Um, and it did just kind of get me thinking again, like we were saying about um, Schopenhauer, it's like a really interesting one because more so than a lot of, I well, I don't know, more so than a lot of philosophers, he was, his, uh, philosophy was kind of adopted a few times later in, later on, in later, late, later down the line, because there which kind of arose these sort of cultural moments, uh whereby his philosophy was just simply like appropriate culturally um and it kind of he kind of had these resurgences uh throughout throughout time in kind of like the, the, 50 uh, years blocks philosopher
1: um, or author did bring him back into some sort of public eye after his death i think because all oh, like just before he died i remember reading uh which is kind of like british melancholia. the Brits are you know intrinsically melancholic they've been struck with the disease of melancholy uh, which is like a massive thing you know back in like you know this time it was like like melancholy was a disease of the English
0: (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. exactly and that's another thing because I think Schopenhauer was big for the a lot of the modernists a lot of the early modernists and it kind of was that acutely British experience of the sort of the modern condition, which is obviously you know modernism was such a kind of global, I mean well, where a large Western, largely proliferated through the Western kind of culture. Obviously, was was kind of pretty in synchronicity in in this weird sort of materiality of cultural moments of of sort of uh, periods in history and this kind of pervasiveness of particularly something as historically significant as you know, the kind of 40 years following the Industrial Revolution and the kind of rise of, I guess you wouldn't call it techno-capitalism just yet probably, but industrial capitalism and how, you know, culture, culture and society and politics and economics changed sort of more rapidly and in, in more acute ways than potentially probably any other time in history, I think it's pretty fair to say. And the kind of the viscerality of that and the sort of, the way that that will kind of synchronize people's thought patterns uh who are kind of attuned and and, and sensitive to say you know I mean, i'm basically saying artists <laughs> a lot of artists will kind of have a very similar experience the poet's, uh, uh,
1: poet's affliction isn't it i guess
0: yeah hypersensitive yeah. tell me about it hypersensitivity <laughs> yeah um but yeah like I, and I just really like that idea of, and I feel like it's quite it's quite prevalent in this poem of the materiality of cultural drones, and particularly again because capitalism is such a good example because it literally builds cities. <laughs> you know, London was literally the London that Thompson's walking around was literally built by this force of kind of self proliferating, self consuming, swirling behemoth of of capital. Um, was literally erecting towers all around you um and this yeah like that that again that kind of smog that that clings to the buildings and sp- clouds the end of alleyways and it's it's the spare, the spectre haunting Europe
1: there was a, there was another thing i was reading this article which is a really good one uh about the city of night being is this like sublimation of desire to renounce the monotony of the eternal like the eternal cycle so it's this uh his vision I guess mm. of trying to get out of this monotonous cycle because that's why I read the book was very I mean not the book itself but there was a lot of allusion to monotony and mm. you know you have to do these things every day we live in this city of night every day it's not like people are being tortured in hell or in the inferno there isn't like a Layers of torture and different torture for each person. It's like everyone has the same fate. Everyone's fate is the same, and that can go back to schopenhauer's will. Everyone's will is the same, and the will to live, I guess. Mm. But within, uh, Thompson's like city is like phantasmagorical city. It's more your fate is to just live a life of monotony, which I feel like is very. Like, it resonates today as well with, with COVID. Yeah.
0: The texturelessness.
1: You know, I thought this book was fairly modern for being quite, you know, Victorian. I mean, it's not even that long ago. That's only like two, three hundred years ago. So and uh, but I thought there was something very, you know, contemporary in a way about it with its uh, return to the idea of monotony. And there's uh, there's like the river of suicides in it. And this is like you know, suicide rates are going getting a lot higher. Through you know, people not being able to see friends, family, uh, mm. losing jobs, and stuff like that. There's no mention of anyone working in this city as well. I don't think it's mm. like there is no, there's no societal meaning that's put onto you. You just have to be in this monotonous, like cycle, the whole time.
0: Mm. And I like the way that he there's a there's a very um, there's a very sort of quite profoundly. I mean, I, I'd, I'd hesitate to say it's the most poetic part of the poem, but when he uh, is describing, it's, in, it's the very introduction, um, and he trying to find the exact bit. So it's in so it's in the first canto. Dissolveth like a dream of night away, though present, though present in distempered gloom of thought and deadly weariness of heart all day. But when a dream night after night is brought throughout a week and such weeks few or many recur each year for several years, can any discern that, that dream from real life in aught? For life is but a dream whose shapes return, some frequently, some seldom, some by night and some by day, some night and day. We learn the while all change and many vanish quite in, recurren- in their recurrence with recurrent changes a certain seeming order where this ranges we count things real such as memories might it's kind of this weirdly intensely beautiful kind of phenomenological depiction of how life is just this endless sequence of events but it's kind of given texture and meaning by our ability to discern the repetition of shapes and forms and but also kind of this understanding that it's just an illusion of this thing that we call memory <laughs> that like
1: jameson's projection of the, the kind of the dreamer you know like uh he's a, he's a Shelley dreamer isn't he he's like creating these massive myths um of yeah I don't know yeah he's just such a dreamer as a poet like most poets I guess I
0: think there's a very intense awareness that that's kind of that's really all we have and that's the kind of like part of the horror of the city of endless night that it's kind of this terrifying place because nothing's kind of quite real but that's also sort of the only solace that we have is our capacity to dream and our capacity to kind of engineer these dream worlds I
1: was Rooting society of the spectacle and he talks about how um you know i just what that's what you're talking about with dreams and how you have to live in this sort of dream world to be able to achieve anything in a way but what people want to do is living in a dream world and aspire to the dreams of what i was trying to link it to is like the spectacle you know the, the dreams of you know, I'm gonna own a yacht, I'm gonna own, you know, four supercars or whatever. This this spectacle dream that you've been shown in media every day, you know, the dreamer. Yeah. The, it's almost like the faux dreamer's dream, though. You know, it's like yeah, it's, it's exactly. a manufactured dream. And I think what's beauty beautiful about James Thompson, is an organic, like horrific dream, but there's like beauty within that horror. And I think that's what this poem's so Good at is the transformation of horror into dreamlike beauty
0: yeah mm. and the, the playing off of i think harking back to what we were saying about kind of um pessimism and uh, pessimism itself being a kind of fabrication a kind of positive entity uh and a sort of layer and a, a nightmare basically and this sort of like you're saying it to, to get to sort of expand on that a bit i guess like the uh the nightmare is the industrial city. The nightmare is industrial London where day to day is literally <laughs> that grinding under the wheel of the mill where, you know, you kind of have just, just children coughing in factories and then people getting their hands crushed and waking up in the morning to go back to another day of nearly dying just for the sake of earning enough to be able to go to bed again at night and then get up and do it again the next morning. And, but at the same time, this kind of intense awareness that is, it's not, you know, this is, this is a construction, this is what we've made. (laughs) This isn't intrinsic or, or, I mean, it's organic, but it's not real in any kind of sort of metaphysical sense. It's, it's a, it's a human nightmare and kind of using that as an excuse. To play off well, if reality is a nightmare, then my dreams have just as much reality as I want them to have
1: yeah, yeah, and
0: yeah. like you say, kind of using it as a kind of uh, di- a, a dialectic kind of setting up this battle mm-hmm. for I guess the soul the soul of the dreamer uh, in in this city of night where nothing's actually real anymore because like you say you've our nightmares are, are fabrications of the capital industrial system and, and our dreams are of, yeah, our dreams are products of that as well. We
1: need real dreamers again. Yeah. <laughs> Bring back real dreamers. Yeah. Yeah. t
0: n He stood alone within the spacious square, declaiming from the central grassy mound, with his head uncovered and with streaming hair, as if large multitudes were gathered round. A stalwart shape, the gestures full of might, the glances burning with unnatural light. As I came through the desert, thus it was, As I came through the desert, all was black. In heaven no single star, on earth no track. A brooding hush without a stir or note, the air so thick it clotted in my throat. And thus for hours, then some enormous things swooped past with savage cries and clanking wings. But I strode on austere, no hope could have no fear. As I came through the desert, thus it was. As I came through the desert, eyes of fire, glared at me throbbing with a starved desire. The hoarse and heavy and carnivorous breath was hot upon me from deep jaws of death. Sharp claws, swift talons, fleshless fingers cold, plucked at me from the bushes, tried to hold. But I strode on a steer. No hope could have no fear. As I came through the desert, thus it was. As I came through the desert, lo, you there, that hillock burning with a brazen glare, those myriad dusky flames with points aglow, which writhed and hissed and darted to and fro. A sabbath of the serpents heaped pell-mell for devil's roll-call and some fate of hell. Yet I strode on a steer. No hope could have no fear. As I came through the desert, thus it was. As I came through the desert, meteors ran and crossed their javelins on the black sky span. The zenith opened to a gulf of flame. The dreadful thunderbolts jarred earth's fixed frame. The ground all heaved in waves of fire that surged. And welted round me soul, there unsubmerged. Yet I strode on austere, no hope could have no fear. As I came through the desert, thus it was, As I came through the desert, air once more, And I was close upon a wild seashore. Enormous cliffs rose on either hand, The deep tide thundered up a league-broad strand. White foam belts seethed there, Wan spray swept and flew, The sky broke, moon and stars, and clouds and blue. Yet I strode on austere. No hope could have no fear. As I came through the desert, thus it was. As I came through the desert, on the left, the sun arose and crowned a broad crag cleft. There stopped and burned out black except a rim, a bleeding eyeless socket, red and dim, whereon the moon fell suddenly south-west, and stood above the right-hand cliffs at rest. Yet I strode on austere. No hope could have no fear. As I came through the desert, thus it was. As I came through the desert, from the right, a shape came slowly with a ruddy light. A woman with a red lamp in her hand, bareheaded and barefooted on that strand. Oh, desolation, moving with such grace. Oh, anguish, with such beauty in thy face. I fell as on my bier, Hope travailed with such fear. As I came through the desert, thus it was. As I came through the desert, I was twain, two selves distinct that cannot join again. One stood apart and knew but could not stir, and watched the other stark in swoon and her. And she came on and never turned aside, between such sun and moon and roaring tide. And as she came more near, my soul grew mad with fear. As I came through the desert, thus it was. As I came through the desert, hell is mild and piteous matched with that accursed wild. A large black sign was on her breast that bowed, a broad black band ran down her snow-white shroud. That lamp she held was her own burning heart, whose blood drops trickled step by step apart. The mystery was clear. Mad rage had swallowed fear. As I came through the desert, thus it was. As I came through the desert, by the sea, she knelt and bent over that senseless me. Those lamp-drops fell upon my white brow there. She tried to cleanse them with her tears and hair. She murmured words of pity, love and woe. She heeded not the level-rushing flow. And mad with rage and fear, I stood stone-bound so near. As I came through the desert, thus it was. As I came through the desert, when the tide swept up to her there, kneeling by my side. She clasped that corpse like me and they were born away and this vile me was left forlorn. I know the whole sea cannot quench that heart or cleanse that brow or wash those two apart. They love, their doom is drear, yet they nor hope nor fear. But I, what do I hear? When I look back in the first reading, my my note for this is just (laughs) occult. Yeah. Yeah. My
1: first thing I wrote down that the speaker in the in the square is meant to be, you know, a kind of self-insert of the poet, James Thompson, himself,
0: anyway. I like the, um, that kind of is, that's quite a cool idea, like the idea of it kind of uh, being a sort of fragment of himself because that, that kind of like image of, uh, well, the fragmented self kind of comes up within it as well. Like he kind of, there's this weird sort of like, multiplication you know he there's yeah you know, there's that bit where he literally he split is it where he does he split into another version of himself or he like yeah two selves? i was i was twain two selves distinct that cannot join again. yeah like this weird what's the word that cells do the um it's almost yeah, just the div- though isn't it as
1: well like
0: uh yeah well dude this is i mean i was because the way i was kind of looking at this bit was I guess, like, kind of going off of that occult thing was was thinking about because, like, so basically, when I was doing a bit of kind of reading, I was reading a, a few different things about kind of like the occult and particularly like tarot and specific kind of symbology <clears throat> and imagery that occurs in that. And there's obviously like that idea of the twins that mm. comes up a lot in in things like the tarot and kind of interpretations of what that sort of means. And there's just sort of a lot of like ambiguous discussion of like. um the uh what was the phrase it's like the um the fundamental binary or like the kind of basically just this idea of in very kind of broad strokes the the self existing as some kind of primal double as as some kind of uh yeah like fundamental binary Mm -hmm. I think there's a little I think Pynchon talks about it as well just that term as well that phrase of like the, the the primal primary binary or something yeah and um I was kind of trying to think about what that sort of means really and i don't know i was kind of thinking about like it kind of quite a nice model for awareness i guess like how the human mind just actually works and that you've got uh in in terms of self-consciousness and that you've got like the self the imminent the real the kind of real is probably a bit of a loaded term but like the imminent embodied being doing acting self that is kind of like you know present and then you've kind of got this second self that is the kind of faculty of awareness that is the sort of split off uh fragment of the self that kind of reflects on and looks down looks looked back on uh, and kind of has the capacity to kind of contemplate the self um and then that kind of i guess obviously gives gives you of quite a nice like way into all the kind of like occult ideas of like desire and 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 consciousness and and things like that um, but yeah, yeah, I thought that was kind of...
1: No, for sure. So like as well in the poem, in that canto, I think it might be the only time bar the ending where there's a woman being mentioned. Yeah. And as well, what you were saying about the, the kind of like binary of uh, the splitting of mm. his personality, Jung has this, uh, this idea of um, the anima, which is the kind of female element mm. in the male unconscious, which is, you know, very pervading, I guess, within that section, because um, I, I, I think the woman in that who's holding the candle that comes out of the sea is meant to be his, you know, l- the love he had when he was younger. Math- Matilda B- uh, Beatrice, I think her name was, and uh, the kind of, like, feminine unconscious that is arising through um, his kind of, like, relived, like, uh, what was it? Like, this kind of relived um, complex, I think, is what Jung would call it. Like a, You relive certain things, and, like, psychologists would call it complexes, and they represent, uh, like, repressed emotional themes. Mm. which might have, which then these themes can lead to a certain like uh, uh, neuroses, which also can have a part to play with um, kind of James Thompson's personal life and, his, uh, and his, um, mm. his insomnia, you know. I'm not saying this guy was yeah. in perpetual depression, but, yeah. you know, from this poem, it seems like it, but, you know, I suppose he was an actual happy guy as well, which also leads into maybe the idea of, uh, you know, Deleuze's idea of like societal schizophrenia, like you have to live these two mm. lives to, and because and Victorian era, Britain was like the cusp of what we know today, like it was, it was closer to what we know society today as you know, than before. It was very. Yeah, in terms of the basic kind of structure. Yeah. Exactly. You know, basically. Yeah. So I think maybe Deleuze's term of play this double life in society that can lead to schizophrenia. Um, I think, I mean, very basic Deleuzean knowledge here. <laughs> Don't know much yeah. about it, but I think that's what, uh, that's what at least I got from that. Yeah, fair when you were talking about the anima and the, there's this, uh, it's also like, you know, it's, it's symbolized by, you know, an inner duality of, mm. you know, um, a man and a woman, you know, and there's loads of uh, kind of religious paintings from the medieval times where you would have like a hermaphroditic kind of um, like representation of that. Mm. But yeah, no, I just thought, yeah, just when you were um, mentioning, Binary just made me think of that.
0: I think that idea of the anima is definitely really interesting. And the idea of, like you say, that Jungian kind of concept of the feminine embedded within the masculine. is kind of because another kind of way I was trying to sort of read this this duality, which which does speak quite nicely to that correlative with with the with the Jung sort of idea of some sort of uh, specifically gendered or sexual uh, binary within the self is the kind of it's quite an interesting model for like desire and how one kind of experiences desire in terms of um you know the the self is split into the binary of having the actual self and the potential self so you have kind of like the actual self who was in the world who's in the state that you're in now and the potential so you kind of the act of desire is the kind of engineering of this potential self who has this kind of who is in possession of this object or this state that becomes the desired thing. And it's the act of trying to kind of consolidate the actual self with the potential self and like collapse that binary or like reach across the binary that sort of is the mechanism of desire. And then kind of, I don't know, I was making me think when you're saying about like the kind of Deleuzian or like rather, sorry, but when you're saying about, um, (coughs) thompson as a bit of a sad sack and like where does where where what is the kind of what is the center of this kind of misery that he's uh that he's 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 embodying in his work and it that then in the context of like you know this inherent binary uh as as a model of desire that is kind of quite quite strongly felt it seems in in this section at least it's it kind of it's quite schopenhauerian the mm. idea that kind of desire is fundamentally desire to, to desire is fundamentally human, but to desire is to suffer, um, which yeah. then obviously kind of ties quite nicely into like, well, what's the foundation of the modern capitalist society? You know, at, at, which itself is the foundation of the delusian kind of schizophrenic state. Yeah, when it's yeah. desire. Um, it kind of like I don't know. It ties quite nicely into that. Um, the, this found, yeah this foundation of this binary within the self of the of, of the actual self and the kind of potential self or the the, the self that have the self that has something that the actual self lacks as being the kind of fundamental fissure or like kind of disparity that is at the root of kind of society and culture and also the the, the individual's kind of uh neuroses i guess mm-hmm. i also thought i kind of <laughs> i took it to a bit of like a <clears throat> a logical conclusion because i was just toying with the idea of like the little threads in this that map really nicely onto sort of weird kind of fluke like imagery and flukes of like contemporary society because uh, there are a few bits that just mirror really really weirdly well and like was just thinking about how that kind of model that I just described where you have the actual self and the potential self, which is the sort of object of desire is the kind of motivating aspect of desire being confronted with that uh, potential self is literally just how advertisement works (laughs) Mm -hmm. is like you is that they will show you yourself with with the beer and the car and the hot babes, like yeah, and it's, yeah. it's making that disparity between making that fissure and that gap between the actual self as you currently are and the potential self as you could ultimately be, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, super intensely felt. Uh, and so I was going kind of like, is is this section like a kind of weird, like phenomenological proto-advertisement where he's kind of just <laughs> yeah. like unpack the mythological psyche psychological origins of like where where advertisement kind of comes from in our sort of modern in our in our in our society just a funny a funny little funny yeah. little idea